Hey everyone, I'm Andy Petronic, and this is the Whole Life Challenge Podcast. It's the place we connect with extraordinary people, ones who think differently, who have risen to the top of their field, who have vast knowledge, experience, and insights to share, as well as incredible stories to tell. They are also the ones who have figured out a way to take their life's experience and turn it into something that truly makes a difference in the world for others. These are their stories. everyone and welcome back to another episode of the whole life challenge podcast it's andy petronic and this is num- episode number 125 and something new for the first time in 125 episodes we have a sponsor yes we have a sponsor uh that is sponsoring actually the entire whole life challenge for the duration of the whole life challenge Um, This episode is brought to you by The Good Kitchen. I've got to tell you that one of the best things I've ever done in my life, literally, well, in my modern life, uh, recent life, recent history, is to uh, decide to get my meals delivered to me. Uh, Prepared meals are a game changer. They changed my life. Um, They eliminate the decision-making I have to make. Where do I go for lunch? Are the ingredients that I'm having compliant if I'm in the whole life challenge? Are they healthy? Are they going to make me feel good? I get to release all of those decisions. And man, it's so helpful. I usually usually use them for lunch, but uh, the Good Kitchen will supply you breakfast, lunch, or dinner. And um, they're awesome. And by the way, if you uh, place your order... Now, while the whole life challenge is going on, you can get 15% off your first order. You use the link thegoodkitchen.com forward slash WLC. And uh, I'll put that up in the show notes as well. So it's great to have a sponsor. And um, yeah, let's get on to the episode. Uh, I'm really excited about our lineup of guests. I said that last week, and I'm still excited about our lineup of guests. Today is a really special one for me. It's with Dr. Jason Fung. He's a nephrologist. He's the author of the best-selling Obesity Code. He's an expert in intermittent fasting and insulin control. Uh, just He's a, fa- a fantastic guest. I'll tell you a little bit more about him in a minute. Um, next up after him is Drew Logan. He's one of the only people in the world. Actually, he might be the only person in the world to have died three times in one night. Um, pretty incredible story. Um, and he's a fitness coach and he's written a book called uh, 25 Days. It's, it was his system for helping him with his memory loss after these near-death experiences. So um, it's, it's a really cool story and he's a great guest. Um, then I have the founder of The Good Kitchen, believe it or not. Her name is Amber Lewis and she's She's uh, she's going to talk all about entrepreneurship, sustainability, the sourcing of food. Um, and then I have the founder of Zero Shoes. And then I have the host of the Better Human podcast. And it's going to be an awesome next six weeks. So um, let me tell you a little more about Jason Fung. He earned his medical degree at the University of Toronto. He also earned his or completed his internal medicine residency there before heading to the University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, for his fellowship in nephrology. 
That's kidneys, in case you were wondering. He currently practices as a kidney specialist in Toronto, and he is the scientific editor of the Journal of Insulin Resistance. Uh, you know, his story really is about his experience treating thousands of patients uh, for kidney disease. And for a lot of the people that he sees are obese or they have significant weight issues. And it became clear to him in treating these patients that the epidemic of type 2 diabetes was getting worse. And the prevailing dietary recommendations to reduce dietary fat, um, reduce calories, uh, were just not working. They just didn't work. He founded uh, the Intensive Dietary Management Program to provide a unique treatment for type 2 diabetes and obesity. And he talks all about in this episode what is different about the recommendations that he gives. He's he's not worried about cal- caloric balance. He's not worried about excess fat in the diet. He's worried about the things that affect insulin levels. And it's the chronic elevated insulin levels that are the big problem with people and obesity and type two diabetes. Um, we, uh, the conversation is wide and varied. Um, I ask him a lot of questions uh, about, you know, how did he come upon this? How did he figure this out? How did he decide that he wanted to kind of go out on a limb and be one of the only people in the world talking about this in, you know, against the the stream against the current he's also a a huge user and believer in intermittent fasting and we talk a lot about that his book the obesity code is a is kind of a reference source for intermittent fasting fasting in general and uh, we talk a lot about that so stand by he's coming um but next up is the fan of the week i'm going to read a review from itunes um from my birthday, December 13th, 2017, uh, that I haven't read before. He's my fan of the week. His name is Will Word for Food. And here's his review. Andy does a fantastic job of hosting interesting people from all walks of life. So far, these podcasts have been a factor in my own self-improvement, which can also be shared with others. Just pick one and get started. You're sure to be drawn in and want more. One other aspect that I'd like to point out is how good of a listener and conversationalist Andy is. He doesn't interrupt or talk over his guests constantly like some other podcasts I've heard. And he has good timing with even better questions and topics. Then he uses an abbreviation that I have no idea what means. R-M-I-S. And his name is Ben. So Ben, thank you so much uh, for your review. Thanks for taking time to read the review. If you're a new listener and have never heard me say this, reviews are really what it's all about, written reviews. If you like the podcast, if you get something out of what we're doing, the people we're talking to, if you're learning new things, please go to iTunes and leave a review. The link is bit.ly, B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash W-L-C dash podcast. I would be very, very grateful if you do. And Ben, by the way, if you hear this, send me an email at podcast at wholelifechallenge.com and I will send you a t-shirt. So thanks again. And um, yeah. Last but not least, uh, the pot, the Whole Life Challenge is going on. And um, we're a couple of weeks in now and you should be kind of getting, getting the swing of things. Maybe we're not a couple of weeks in, we're a week in. 
Um, my team is called Getting Out of the Comfort Zone. By the way, if you'd like to join it, you're welcome. You can do a search for the word comfort and you'll find it right away. And uh, you're welcome to join us. And uh, yeah, week two of the challenge is still, still I'm kind of operating on excitement and, and um, you know, it's not too difficult yet. Although I've, I've been struggling with getting in my well-being practice, which is breathing this week. So um, I'm planning on raising the bar on that for the remainder of the week. But um, as always, if you've got a question or you want to reach out, uh, you can reach me at podcast at wholelifechallenge.com or you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. My handle is very simple, at Andy Petronic. So let's get on with the episode. It's enough of me talking. Episode 125 with the one, the only, Dr. Jason Fung. All right. So, uh, Dr. Jason Fung, welcome to the Whole Life Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Well, I, I like I was telling you before, I feel like you're uh, on my list of like nutritional celebrities that of, of, <laughs> of you know authors and books written, and I just really appreciate you being here and and taking the time. And actually, it's kind of strange to actually be talking with this person that I've you know read all your words and I've read a lot of the stuff that you've done. So, um, th- yeah, thank you, thank you. Oh. Thanks for having me on. It's great to be here. So um, I guess, you know, like diving right in, one of my first questions was, when did you, how did you, um, was there an aha moment that you had that, um, what am I trying to say, that you, where you were aware that the stuff you would learn in medical school and the stuff you learned in traditional uh, as a traditional trained nephrologist and doctor w- wasn't working, wasn't right. Was there, w- what was that? Yeah. The, um, it was probably around 2008 or so there was, so what had happened was that there's a lot of studies of the Atkins diet somewhere around 2000, they started because it was very popular getting into about 99 to 2000. Right. Um, so I knew some people who had done the Atkins diet and they did very well. So the, but the doctors hated it. They thought it was like the worst thing, all this fat and all this sort of stuff. They thought it was terrible. So we, there's a number of studies that got started right around that time to sort of prove that the Atkins diet was going to like kill you. So those all started coming out around 2007, 2008, and they got published in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is really sort of the top medical journal for doctors. Um, So I'm an internal medicine specialist. I'm a kidney specialist. That's kind of the number one journal. It's sort of like the New York Times of, uh, you know, medical journals. It's the best. So what it showed is that these these diets were actually not bad at all. Um, so here I had been taught and I had been telling patients that, oh, this sort of Atkins thing is not very good for you and so on. But when the studies actually came out, what they showed was that it was actually pretty reasonable. Not only did it not have any of these bad effects, in a lot of respects, it was significantly better than the sort of low fat uh, low calorie sort of model that we had been using. And, so, and Atkins today would has kind of taken the form of keto, right? I mean, it's become yeah. kind of morphed into a ketogenic diet. Yeah. And I, uh, I think that the whole Atkins thing, remember the Atkins diet started ages ago in the seventies. Yeah. And by when it started, it was a fairly high fat diet as the sort of 
low-fat craze hit, it, it, it sort of um, changed a little bit to more of a high-protein diet. Um, and then there is a lot of sort of uh, bastardization. So rather than eating sort of whole foods, there's all these sort of Atkins bars and our yeah, Atkins yeah. processed foods. So, um, you know, my whole thing is that I think proce- the processing is the major toxicity. Uh, you know, yeah, I think we have to get away from the macro so much and really look at eating whole foods because you can do e- well eating whole foods sort of no matter what the macros are because that's what the um, traditional peoples did. But in any case, as the low, whole low fats sort of craze hit, Atkins started going more high protein. Then it started adding in all these processed foods and sweeteners and all this sort of stuff. And that kind of got away from the whole thing. So keto is much more similar, I think, to the original sort of Atkins right. diet that became very popular. So it's sort of a low um low refined carbohydrates, uh, sort of moderate protein, not super high protein, and high in natural fats. So again, everybody says high fat, but it's not all it's not all fat. So yep. a lot of the vegetable oils, for example, I think are highly processed. And we know now that they're very high in omega-6s, very highly inflammatory, all this kind of thing. So there's definitely um, some nuances. It's not simply just the, just the fat that's, that's important. But in any way, it is closer to the Atkins. So the Atkins uh, studies all started came out around that time. And it wasn't just one. It was like two or three studies that showed that it was actually significantly better in many respects. And to me, that was a huge paradox. That is, my whole thinking about nutrition sort of got upended. And it's strange because in, in medicine, there's a very, very uh, strong reluctance to change people's points of view. Right. That is to say that um, you can produce these articles in the New England Journal of Medicine, which is sort of the best that you can do, and doctors won't change their opinion one bit. And I'm always, it's always strange to me because I'm always like, well, when the evidence changes, I change my point of view because yeah. that's where the science takes you. But that's not what doctors do, and that's what academic doctors anyway and the reason is that they're very heavily invested in this sort of old paradigm. So they've built their career on calorie counting, for example. So they're not going to embrace the Atkins diet because it, it, it goes against everything that they've been saying for the last 20 years. They can't just say, oh, I'm wrong. I can say that because I have nothing invested in that. I haven't written papers. I don't, didn't build my career on uh, counting calories in the low-fat model. So to me, it's like, wow, this is really, really interesting because... Well, did, didn't Tim Noakes do that and he got into all kinds of hot water in South Africa? I mean, that was... uh, it wasn't... Yeah, I mean, he the, the hot water was uh, sort of a trumped-up sort of... Yeah, um, yeah. Sort of a witch hunt against him. Totally, But right. he did. I mean, he, he had, was He had the courage sort of a... to do exactly what you're talking about doing. Well, exactly. And, right. he, and, and that shows true courage because he did build his whole sort of career on um, eating lots of carbs for athletes sort of thing. Then he said, you know what? I was wrong. Yeah. And to be able to say that is sort of the mark of a true scientist. And yeah. most people, unfortunately, don't have that courage. They simply stick to their guns and just try and shout everybody else down. So yeah. people who, who are invested in this low-fat model, for example, in the 1990s, early 2000s, you got to remember that all fat was bad for you. So avocados were terrible for you. Right. Uh, 
olive oil was horrible, nuts, terrible, high in fat. Like it was hysterical. Like it, anything that was fat was going to clog your arteries. I mean, we fast forward to 2017 and we're like, oh yeah, there's healthy fats. There's, you know, avocados are great for you. Nuts are great for you. Um, but that's not what it was in the, in the early 2000s. And again, it took almost 10, 15 years to kind of get to this stage, which is horrible because the evidence was all there uh, a decade ago that, hey, these things were not that bad for us. Why didn't we change our minds a lot earlier? Because people are dying. It's because people have this sort of uh, reluctance to change their minds. But that was sort of the aha moment for me was somewhere around then when, when the studies really showed that it, it wasn't that bad. In fact, it was very much better for weight loss. And that's when I started really getting interested because I, more than anything else, I am interested in these sort of paradoxes because it's the sort of inconsistencies that move everybody forward. That is, if we understood everything perfectly, there would be nothing to understand. It's when something doesn't fit that you can really start to learn something. Right. And, you know, to me, I was actually rather stunned because I was like, um, you know, why doesn't the anybody else talk about the fact that this is a reasonable diet? Because are you not reading the same studies I'm reading? Because these are all published in the best medical journals in the world. Why haven't we changed our minds? And unfortunately, most people don't. They just kind of keep repeating the same advice. Oh, count your calories, cut the fat. And you can still hear that sort of same advice, um, you know, sort of uh, even now, right? Like 10 yeah, years no, after I, the still, evidence came out. It's still it's, very strong. I mean, it's, it's you, still you, very I mean, strong. It's unbelievable how you're right, like how kind of um, wedged in we are and our, our thinking is and our especially our, in, uh, from our doctors, you know, like, gosh, it's yeah, it's amazing to me. Yeah. And then that's what's sort of unfortunate. So that's why. Um, I started getting interested in it. And then the more I looked into it, um, and it does affect me on a professional level because I take care of a lot of obese patients, a lot yep. of type 2 diabetics. So, of course, I'm, uh, not only am I interested because it's a sort of a paradox and it's interesting, but it's also what I do sort of day in and day out. And uh, if, if things are changing from the obesity side of things, then I need to know about it because that will affect the advice that I give patients, which will yep. affect their life. So that's where I really got interested in it. And, and, and you know, one of the things that sort of um, fueled me, I suppose, was that there was so much sort of old advice still kind of hanging around that nobody really wanted to change their minds. And that that's harmful to people because if they're getting the wrong information that they should be. So if you think about the advice that we gave sort of 10 years ago, it was for type two diabetics, for example, to eat 55, 60% carbohydrates, mm -hmm. the majority of which is bread and rice and potatoes. Okay. Well, bread and rice and potatoes, there's no doubt raise your blood sugar quite a bit compared to an egg, for example. So, if the problem is the high blood sugar, why are we telling people to eat the very foods that are going to raise their blood sugar the most? Yeah, yeah. Like this is not just, you know, fringe stuff. This is sort of the core of medicine for these type 2 diabetics, most, you know, of which uh, constitutes the majority of my practice. So, and if these people don't lose weight, their diabetes is not going to get better. Yeah. So losing weight is not just, oh, I want to look good in my bikini. It's this is what's going to kill you. This is what's going to kill your kidney. This is what's going to give you your heart attack. This is very, very, very important stuff. And there is so much sort of um, 
poor information, bad information that sort of still exists. And that's why I started writing a blog about it. And then I wrote a book and then also about fasting. Fasting is the same sort of idea. There's really nobody who did it at the time that I did it. Right. Um, even to mention it, you know, would have gotten kicked you out of, you know, kicked out of uh, polite conversation sort of thing. And uh, now, of course, there's sort of increasing interest. But when I started five years ago, doctors were like, oh, yeah, that's like the, the worst thing. So, well, there's a difference between uh, extreme fasting and the fasting that you recommend. You know, I mean, yeah, you're, yeah. you're you, you've never you, you, I mean, I think you're very clear in everything you write. Look, you'd never recommend you know, doing without food for two weeks or three weeks. I mean, without doctor supervision, without very careful blood metrics, you know, being measured, you know, it's, it's, it's all a matter of context really. So we do have people who go for two weeks, but it's under supervision and it's in specific circumstances. So if people are, for example, extremely obese and have severe type two diabetes, then that might be a good thing. If you're underweight, then yeah, that's, that's not a good idea. So it's all about the context and applying it properly. Uh, But what happened was that, you know, we kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater. We said, oh, fasting, we just won't use it for anybody. It's like, but it's a, it's a therapeutic option. It's a tool. You can use it or not use it. It's like a chainsaw. It's very useful sometimes and it'll kill you if you don't use it properly. So the point is that it's not the tool that's the problem. It's, mm-hmm. it's having the knowledge to apply it. Yeah. And there is simply no knowledge out there. There is like nothing out there to guide people if they wanted to use it to even for doctors to understand what is it about fasting that's really so good or so bad for you and the 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 studies that i wound up looking at are all like 30 years old 40 years old so and again the way you apply it is very important so we use a lot of intermittent fasting which is sort of short-term uh fast i mean people think fasting for more than sort of eight hours is extreme (laughs) these days uh with all the advice to eat you know, six times a day, it's like, okay, you know, and these sort of things again. Well, I loved it. I loved in your book when you said, you know, your mom was right. Stop. Don't snack, you know, like the old school moms, (laughs) not the current day moms. Current day moms are like, you got to have snacks with you at all times. Never let your blood sugar drop below, you know, so you're feeling shaky or anything. And back in the old days, it was like, no, you don't snack. You don't snack before dinner. You're going to hold your, you're going to hold yourself. And then you eat, you know, maybe three times a day. Exactly. Um, and, and, and the truth is that eating six times a day, nobody ever gave that advice to anybody. It, there was no science behind that sort of suggestion. It just got sort of repeated enough that people believed it and probably pushed very hard by food companies that, oh, yeah, you should eat six times a day. Right. Well, why don't you ask your grandmother if they, she ate six times a day? She's like, man, I had work to do. Yeah. Like, who's going to sit around the kitchen eating all day? Uh, the whole thing is like faintly ridiculous. So we here we have a, um, you know, a, a strategy, a dietary strategy, eating six times a day that has never been used in the history of mankind. Okay, because everybody has work to do. You don't want to just hang around and think about food all day because you're working. You're out in the fields. You're plowing. You're hunting. You're gathering. Whatever it is you're doing, you have work to do. So here we have a dietary strategy which is never been used before. There's no science behind it. There's no studies that prove that it works. There's no science to even show that it's even any in any way beneficial. So completely untested and goes from, you know, the fringe to, oh, this is what we teach everybody in the United States and Canada. Because you look at schools, for example, like 
you know, my son's school is no different. There's breakfast, you eat breakfast at home, you have a mid-morning snack, you have your lunch, you have an after-school snack, and then you have your dinner. And then if you play soccer, you have a snack in between the halves. Yep. It's like, okay, when we used to play soccer, we just went out and played soccer. Right. Our moms were not running after us and handing us some fruit slices right. or cookies or granola bars. Our moms would have said, if you don't want to play soccer, don't play soccer. Right. Like, just come in and do your homework. It's right? funny. It's just so, came up the other day because I, I do pickup. My son is 10. He plays soccer. Uh, and I do pickup on Thursdays from school. And I take three boys from school to right to soccer practice and then wait right. for them at soccer practice. And uh, in the, the last, like, three weeks, the other two moms have been driving on Thursdays. And they've been bringing snacks for all the boys in the car. And I told my yeah. son, I'm like, look, you need to tell your buddies I I do I don't do snacks. Like if they want snacks, if they need feel like they have to have snacks, they can bring them. But uh, dad dad doesn't do snacks for right. for the kids. And I not because I'm a jerk, but or, or because I don't think uh, you know they might be hungry. I first of all I don't think that way. I don't think necessarily around snacks. But I think they should be responsible for themselves first of all. But and I secondly I don't think they need them. You know like I don't think they need them. Right? Who like do you you know when you know, you play soccer and when you play sports, who is hungry when they play sports? Like you're, nobody. Right. You get into the game, <laughs> you're into the game. Who is hungry? Like, right. I don't think any of those kids are hungry at all. There's no reason to have a snack in between the halves. Well, and if if you didn't and, and, and the attitude before was if you're hungry at dinner time, then you should have eaten more at lunch. Now the attitude is, well, you can go get a cracker or some granola bars with sugar and, you know, raisins and stuff like lots of sugar and the point about snacks is not necessarily that they're bad but who's bringing you know an egg for snack like nobody right everything right. that is snackable is like refined carbohydrates and refined sugars because they keep at room temperature so yeah. you can bring cookies because they don't spoil at room temperature but you're not going to bring yourself a few slices of you know fish right, right. and that's the whole point you're way better off from a health standpoint eating fish than eating chocolate chip cookies. But nobody's ever going to bring some 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 fish to to the car, right? Like <laughs> open a can, of, like open a can of sardines or something. You know, you, exactly. You, <laughs> it, it's like yeah. <laughs> I bring I bring so, a can of sardines on mountain bike rides now, and uh, usually I don't have them. Usually I don't get hungry enough to eat. But it's my kind of my emergency food because it's it's yeah, perfect. Yeah. It's a little bit of protein. It's full of fat. It's you know, it'll, yeah. it'll, it'll provide me incredible nourishment for the remainder of a ride if I get famished. But, yeah. um, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not popular when I open the can and run my friends cause it stinks <laughs> to high heaven. But, uh, yeah, exactly. But so, I, I, I wanted to, you know, one of the things, oh, what I, I wanted to say, one of the things I started experimenting with after reading your book and, and doing some, uh, intermittent fasting was doing my workouts. I tend to work out at noon. Um, and, uh, doing your workouts on a fast. So I would, you know, I stop eating at eight o'clock at night or eight 30 at night. And then I don't eat again, usually until lunch. And very often lunch is at two for me because I, right. you know, so I'm completely fasted when I go to work out and it doesn't affect me at all. I mean, actually, yeah, I, maybe it does affect me. Uh, it doesn't affect me negatively at all. Right. Uh, and which is very interesting. I don't know that I ever would have thought that would be the case yeah you know? yeah and this is some of the sort of emerging uh research 
church and, and it's mostly for sort of um endurance athletes and so on is that you know training on a fasted state is sort of one of these uh hot areas of research because there may be actual benefits that is people may actually do better training on a fasted state rather than what they used to think which is just drink lots of sugary fluids and so on and and the point is that everybody thinks that eating is going to magically you know give them energy it doesn't because when you eat your body needs to digest that food the blood is sort of diverted to the intestines and you got to you know absorb those nutrients and so on so the bottom line is when you eat insulin goes up which is a storage hormone and when you eat your body is in a sort of energy storing mode it's not you're, you can't get your energy out because your body is busy trying to push it in. Mm -hmm. So it's like, why would you think that eating makes you, you know, any better at athletics? And same for concentration. Everybody thinks, oh, if I don't eat, I can't concentrate. Well, what about eating do you think makes gives you concentration? Because again, it's the same thing. Say you eat a huge Thanksgiving meal. Do you feel like really, really sharp afterwards? No, nah, not really. You just want to lie down on the couch and they call it food coma sometimes. It's like, that food didn't give you a lot of energy. It didn't give you a lot of concentration skills. In fact, you're better off fasting uh, because that is going to give you much more mental energy because you're in a state where you're, you're, you're taking the energy from your body rather than trying to push it in. If you're pushing it in, you can't use it. So yeah, there's a lot of these sort of myths that get kind of uh, pushed around and without any sort of evidence. And that's really what, what interested me in the whole sort of topic was that there's just so much sort of bad information out there that's uh, you know somebody makes it up and somebody thinks that it sounds good so it just gets propagated sort of you know this it's interesting because uh another story like this that came up in one of my very early on podcast was the story about icing and icing icing wounds and icing icing for uh inflammation reduction and how that is a very it's a very similar story back in the 60s that, that where ice became this this myth without any testing, without any scientific evidence, without every. And now y you can't really talk to somebody that doesn't think that the first thing you should do if you sprain your ankle is put ice on it. Um, yeah. Where, where before the 60s, it was, you know, walk it off or run it off or move it, keep moving it. And it's just a very I don't want to go down that wormhole because it's a that's a whole nother wormhole. But um there it's very interesting how those things become generally accepted truths you know that everybody yeah. just knows oh you always you put ice on things oh you you make make sure you eat six times a day and you never get hungry you know like, yeah it's weird. yeah it is it is kind of um bad but it's it, it just shows you the sort of power of advertising and yeah. so on because there's a lot of people that are interested of course in promoting sort of snacks like the snack yeah. food companies obviously right. They, right. they they want to sell products so they're going to make you uh try to believe that it's healthy and there's a lot of sort of insidious ways other than direct advertising they sponsor a lot of say doctors events and nutritionist events where they teach doctors and nutritionists why it's good to eat six times a day mm -hmm. but uh, you know obviously they're very biased but then it's easy to convince them because they've had sort of decades of momentum and nobody's ever stopped them. And, and there's this whole um, thing about calories. Same thing with calories. Calories is like the most useless concept, truthfully. Um, it's actually, I think, harmful to people to think about calories. And everybody's like, oh, why? It's like, because your body doesn't count calories. 
It has no receptors for calories. It has no idea how many calories you're eating. If you drink a Coke or a Diet Coke, it has no idea which one it's drinking. Hmm. In terms of calories, they're very different. But in terms of the body's response to the calories, well, if it doesn't even measure it, how is it going to respond to more calories or less calories? Like, why would your body even know? So this is the whole thing is that um, the calories model was, again, pushed by a lot of, uh, you know, we know uh, that Coca-Cola, for example, was a huge pusher of the calorie model. Mm -hmm. Uh, They call it energy balance because they want to give it sort of this sheen of respectability. But the whole thing is that they are selling sugary beverages, which are highly fattening. And there's a number of reasons why sugar in particular is highly fattening. And this is something your grandmother knew. If you eat a lot of sugar, eat a lot of candy, you're likely to gain weight. If you eat a lot of broccoli, you are not not likely to gain weight. And that's sort of obvious. But the thing is that Coca-Cola doesn't like that. So it wants to promote the idea that you can drink Coca-Cola, then exercise. So try to equate everything. And calories is a very convenient way for them to sort of um, make that sort of connection. It's not physiologic. It has nothing to do with the human body. Can you talk a little bit about why that doesn't work? Because I think that's a really important um, topic that that people are just not clear on. Why don't calories in and calories out? Why can't you exercise off the sugar that you you eat? Yeah, because the whole thing is that the body um, has sort of several different compartments. Body fat is simply a storage form of energy. And you have food energy that you take in and you store some of it. The problem is not that you take in too much or too little. The problem is that the body allocates too much to the body fat. That is to say, suppose you have somebody who is overweight. They're carrying hundreds of thousands of calories of food energy in their body fat. So then you say, well, it's a problem because you put in too much. It's like, well, but why – The question is not that. The question is, why is he putting in too much? Why can't you simply take those calories from your body fat and use them? Because Mm -hmm. that's what we wanted to do, and that's what it's for. And the answer is, well, obviously, there's a disease state here. Something is out of whack, but what is out of whack? What is out of whack, of course, is that insulin is too high. Insulin tells your body to store body fat. So even if you were to eat less food, your body's still going to store it. So what I mean is that the way that the body responds is through hormones, not through calories. So calories is a concept from physics. It's not a concept from physiology. If you have insulin, if I simply inject you with insulin, your body will store food energy because that's the instructions that it hears. If, if I just give you calories, your body would just burn it off. So we know this from overfeeding studies. If you feed people just a lot of calories, their metabolic rate goes up as they try to burn off that that those calories coming in because your body doesn't actually want to gain weight because if you're overweight, you're going to die in the wild, right? You're too fat. You can't run. You're going to get eaten and killed. So our body has actually very strong mechanisms to prevent weight gain. But clearly, we've overridden them because everybody's overweight. And the, the reason is that the, um, the, the insulin is what tells our body to store fat. What raises insulin more than anything else is refined carbohydrates, but also by constantly eating, you're constantly stimulating insulin. So you're keeping insulin very high. So now let's take a situation, for example, where you're eating 2,000 calories and you're burning 2,000 calories 
right? So kind of an average situation. Now you drop yourself down to 1500 calories because you want to lose weight. What you do is you, you, but you don't lower your insulin levels because you're eating a low fat diet, you're eating six times a day, your insulin is staying high. Well, your body is still getting the instructions to store food energy. So basically it has no access to the fat stores because it's trying to push the energy inwards, not outwards. You can either store energy or you can burn energy, right? But you can't do both at the same time because it doesn't make any sense. So therefore, you're not, you don't have access to those fat stores because insulin is high. So remember, you're storing energy. You can't burn it. So if all you have is 1,500 calories coming in, that's all you can burn is 1,500 calories. So your metabolic rate automatically decreases towards what you're taking in. If you, for example, through fasting or through low-carbohydrate diets, lower your insulin, on the other hand, then what happens is that your body is able to access those fat stores and use that energy. So it's not calories that is important because your body automatically adjusts to that. It's, it's really the insulin. And we know this because there are studies, for example, that, like for type 1 diabetes, when we give people insulin, they gain weight. And it's not like they, they all of a sudden became gluttons overnight or they became you know very lazy overnight. It's because he gave them insulin. There's a very interesting study in, um, in where they took type 2 diabetics and they started out with zero, zero um, insulin and they raised it very quickly to 100 units a day, which is a super high dose. Over six months, these people gained about 20 pounds and their calories in – dropped by 300 per day. Wow. So they ate 300 calories per day less. So according to this calories in calories out model, you should be losing like, you know, a pound a week sort of thing. But you weren't. Instead, you're almost gaining. You're gaining 20 pounds over that time. Well, how is that possible? Well, it's because you're taking so much insulin because we're actually injecting it mm-hmm. that the body is trying to store these 1,700 calories. In order to store energy, you have to drop your metabolic rate from 2,000 down to, say, 1,500. So now you're burning 1,500 but taking in 1,700. Right. You're going to gain weight. Right. So the whole idea is that if you look at calories in, calories out, the most important part, almost the overwhelmingly important part is the calories out, the basal metabolic rate, not your calories in. But we don't we, we pretend like the calories out, the, the basal metabolic rate is stable over time. It is not. It can go up or down by like 40, 50 percent. And that's why um, and, and they did the same for the biggest loser. So mm-hmm. they took all these contestants from the biggest loser and they measured their metabolic rate as they were losing weight. And sure enough, it dropped. It kept dropping, dropping, dropping. So for example, one poor fella, he was eating, he was burning 3,400 calories a day. That was his metabolic expenditure. By the end of it, he was burning 1,700. So it's like, okay, now if you were to eat 2,000, cal- if he was to eat 2,000 calories a day, which is still a lot less than he was before, he would still be gaining weight. So if you look at it from a calories in, calories out model, you need to control the metabolic rate, not the calories that you take in. 
And the way to control that is really through insulin, because insulin is what's going to determine uh, sort of which way the energy is flowing. So because people don't have insulin meters at their house, and most people are not going to take the time to do blood testing unless they have diabetes, you know, for glucose, um, how do you, what, what's a way, what's a better way for someone to think about this, a context, instead of calories in, calories out? Like what, how should they, how should they address this? Well, I think that what you have to think about is foods that are going to, there's two really questions, really, what to eat and when to eat. That is, insulin is the key regulator of obesity. There are others, actually. So cortisol, for example, it's also a key regulator of obesity. But for the most part, it's insulin. So what you want to do is lower your insulin levels. And this is the whole thing. If you eat foods that stimulate a lot of insulin, then it's going to be more fattening than a food that isn't. And this is where the confusion with calories comes in because all foods have calories. So we imagine that this is sort of the what defines the food. But in order for that to be true, then a plate of brownies and a you know a kale a Caesar salad with salmon would be equally fattening. Right. Or you know an, a couple of eggs would be the same fattening effect as a Krispy Kreme donut. Well, that's stupid. You'd have to be stupid to think that eating two eggs and eating a Krispy Kreme donut are in any way equivalent. Because the minute you put the foods in your mouth, the body responds completely differently. So the Krispy Kreme donut, insulin spikes way high. With the eggs, it doesn't go anywhere. So if the physiologic response, if our hormonal response to those foods is completely 100% different from one to the other, why do we imagine that the the you know our, our response to these hormones is going to be the same? Does like, that does that response happen crazy. based on taste? Like when does that response when you say a Krispy Kreme donut or let's just say Diet Coke that has no calories, when does the response happen? When does it, it happens insulin, right away? Does, so based on your the taste body or? responds to yeah, it responds to you know it, the taste does. And also when you absorb it. So when you absorb, for example, a lot of refined carbohydrates, then insulin spikes way up. When yeah. you eat the egg, which is mostly fat and protein, there's not a lot of carbohydrates. Insulin goes up, but only a little bit. So all foods, unless you're eating pure fat, so unless you're drinking sort of pure olive oil kind of thing, which nobody really does to a significant extent, um, if you and all foods stimulate insulin to varying degrees. So what that means is that for the same calorie, so if you take equal calorie portions of food, certain foods are more fattening than others. That is, brownies are more fattening than eggs. And it's like, okay, that's just common sense, right? Yeah. And this is what always gets me is that we get to a concept like calories and we abandon all our common sense. It's like you can eat donuts for dinner. It's like you cannot eat donuts for dinner. And then we try and make up all kinds of reasons why you can eat donuts for dinner because it's the same number of calories as that kale salad that you just ate, right? So sometimes salad has a significant amount of calories if you put dressing and so on. And it's like, well, I could have eaten, uh, you know, three donuts and it's the same. same It's like it's not the same. Right. Right. Same amount of calories. So that's where the confusion comes in because the insulin effect. One of the meals that is probably the most notorious, I think, is breakfast. People think yeah. that they can have a bagel and a donut or or cereal, breakfast cereal, or, you know, uh, and it's the same as having, you know, it's actually better because you have less calories because you don't, you don't have the egg or the omelet and, you know, uh, it's, yeah. it, and it's fast, it's easy, you know, they just reach into the pantry and pour themselves a bowl of cereal and have skim milk to go with it and uh, they think they're doing themselves a favor and it's... Uh, 
Yeah. Not and the, I think his. that that's uh, a lot of advertising as well because yeah. this whole breakfast industry, uh, you know, they have to sell their cereal. So it's a lot better for them to try and make people try to say, oh, breakfast is really important. And there's nothing intrinsically wrong with breakfast. Right. However, right. there's a big difference between eating a steak and egg uh, or uh, bacon and eggs and eating, you know, a bowl of frosted flakes. Right. right? It's, you know, so, so, you know, as soon as you eat it, the, 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 the body responds so differently between the two. I don't see how anybody like who has a brain can think that the body uh, responds the same to them. How, how is that even possible? We can measure the different responses yeah. um, in people. And it's not, and we've known about it for like 50 years. And then everybody says, oh, a calorie is a calorie. I'm like, okay, well, that's that's got to be the dumbest thing ever. And that's really you know, one of the reasons that, 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 that I think everything gets confused because you have a lot of people pushing this calorie model who are interested in sort of exonerating their product. That is Coca-Cola or, you know, uh, frosted flakes or whatever. They want you to think that eating sugar and refined carbohydrates, um, is the same as eating sort of eggs or avocados. It's like, no, 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 no. And then they try and say, well, it's the, it's the vitamins. So we stuck a bunch of vitamins in our frosted flakes. So it's the same. It's like, no, 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 no. They're completely different. So that's where the, the confusion between insulin and, and, and calories comes in because all, all foods to some extent, you know, are, are stimulating to insulin. So, um, so you have model, to kind of, so what we were talking about before is you, you said there were two critical elements, what to eat and when to eat. And, uh, it sounds like, it, the really the thing that should be going through people's heads around what to eat is uh, how does this food impact my blood glucose and my insulin levels? How is not it the blood to... glucose, the insulin, the in because just certain insulin. things. Okay. Yeah, it's just insulin. And, and that's that's where some of this confusion also happens, because then you get into something called the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis. So insulin is very stimulating to body weight because it's it's what tells people to gain weight if i give you insulin you'll gain weight and it's a well-known side effect of the medication so insulin causes weight gain so but but you can't but there's a lot of things that go into the insulin like it's not simply the amount of carbohydrates that you eat so if you eat whole unrefined carbohydrates you can still have very low insulin levels so they did a study on this sort of uh, traditional um, people uh, in the South Pacific called the Catavans, and they ate like a 70% carbohydrate uh, meal. And when they measured their serum insulin levels, they're about the fifth percentile compared to a Swedish population. Wow. That is the average Catavan had a serum insulin level that was about, you know, that was um, lower than 95% of the average sort of Western population. So yes, you can eat a lot of carbohydrates and still have a very low insulin levels. So then if it's not simply the amount of carbohydrates, then you have to say, well, what are all the things that are important for this insulin response? So there's sugar like fructose, which is the, the specific sugar and sugar. That is, uh, there's glucose and there's fructose. When you eat refined carbohydrates like bread, it's mostly glucose. When you eat table sugar, is a combination between glucose and fructose. The fructose is much more fattening than the glucose, and there are some reasons why. But it it and that's 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 um, that's one of the things. Our all carbohydrates are not the same. So 
it's the amount of refining that goes into it, the amount of proteins, the amount of fats is going to affect your insulin levels. The um, insulin resistance is one of these sort of big things that controls the insulin response. That is, if you have something called insulin resistance, that produces more insulin. That tells your body to overcome this resistance. It actually produces more insulin. And you care because that high insulin level is going to make you uh, gain weight. So insulin resistance is a huge factor that uh, in this whole insulin thing that is completely independent of what you eat. And it's more de- determ- a bigger determinant is how often you eat. That is, if you look at resistance in general, it depends on having both high levels, but also persistently high levels. That is, um, if you, for example, go into a hot bath or a hot tub or something like that, right? You go in, you know, you come in from the cold, you go into a hot, uh, hot tub. It's like, whoa, the thing is scalding you hot. After you sit in a while, it's like, oh, this is pretty pleasant. So your body has d- developed resistance, but it's because you're constantly at that level. If you have constant high insulin levels, your body develops insulin resistance. As you develop the insulin resistance, you develop higher insulin levels. So it's a, it's a sort of this vicious cycle. So you get the resistance, which leads to more, um, more insulin, which leads to more resistance, which mm-hmm. leads to more insulin. And the key is that if you can have periods of time sort of out of that cycle, then that's going to prevent you from developing it. And that's like, um, you know, if you're in the hot tub and you get out and then you go back in, it's hot again, right? But the temperature is exactly the same. Well, that's, uh, you know, it's popped into my head the russian the russians have been doing this for centuries with russia their russian baths and cold hot and cold therapy i mean it's not related yeah. at all to calories but it is i never really yeah. kind of thought of it before they, it's, they it's, don't they don't just sit the... in the sauna for 30 minutes they do a, a, a contrast baths they go into yeah. an ice cold plunge and then go back into super hot and then ice cold plunge and that's really this pumping mechanism of the blood moving you know back and forth is similar to what you're talking about yeah it's really to sort of reset um, the whole process. And, and if you go too far one way, you can reset it by going sort of the opposite way. So in this case, you the problem is too much insulin, which leads to insulin resistance, which leads to more insulin. The way you reset it, have periods of very low insulin. And what's that? Well, the lowest you can go is fasting. Right. Because when you don't eat for a period of time, you're going to reset that. So instead of developing more and more resistance, you, you reset it. And then you reset it and it should be done every day. So the very word breakfast is the meal that breaks your fast, which means that you should be fasting every day because you can't break your fast unless you're fasting. This is what people used to do. So you would feed and you would fast. So you would eat during the day and then after 7 o'clock p.m., you wouldn't eat again until, say, 7 a.m., 8 a.m. breakfast time. Is that enough time? 13 hours. Is that enough time to have have an impact? Is that If you do it every day. Mm-hmm. then it's going to keep you in balance. If your feeding and fasting are in balance, so during the feeding period of time, you store food energy. During the fasting period of time, you're pulling out that food energy. If you stay in balance, you're going to do a lot better. Is it enough to lose weight? Maybe not because you're right. just in balance, right? But if you're now to try and skew things the other way with more fasting, then you're going to start pushing into the other direction and then getting into the weight loss because when and you that's don't where eat, you body... that's where you can kind of push that envelope and you can say okay instead of 12 hours I'm going to try 14 hours or yeah 16 or 16 hours. or 24 or 36 or yeah. seven days like 
there's all these different ways to do it and there's no sort of right or wrong answers but on the other hand it's it's understanding that it's it's really about the insulin not about the calories because everybody thinks oh fasting is about zero calories it's like no it has nothing to do with that fasting is about the period of time it's about the time that you're not eating it has nothing to do with the calories and somebody always says oh well well if i eat 2000 calories all in one meal isn't that the same as eating 2000 calories throughout the day i'm like no it's completely different that's like walking across a river that on average is one foot deep. It's like you can drown because everything could be like inches and then suddenly you're in, uh, you know, 10 foot deep of water. The average might be, you know, three inches deep. You're still going to die. It's the same thing. Eating constantly throughout the day is not physiologic. It's not what your body wants to do because every time you eat, your insulin goes up. So you're keep pumping that insulin level up. And so you keep telling your body, store fat, store fat, store fat. Remember, that's insulin's job. You eat, you store fat because when you don't eat, like you're sleeping, insulin falls, you tell your body, hey, pull that fat back out. So if you tell your body constantly to store fat, guess what? Over time, you're going to gain fat. So in that example, you'd be better off, it sounds like, eating the 2,000 calorie meal once a day and not eating again. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, that's I, a, I don't know. That, that I, hopefully, a... that's not Hardee's, you know, or McDonald's, but, but, yeah, be better. I mean, be better off doing that than spreading it out over the course of twelve hours. I, I think so. If you're going to eat, say, say you're going to eat, you know, a certain amount of food, I think you would do better eating it all in one meal than taking it sort of a little bit over the whole day. Right. Um, however, what what happens, of course, when you are eating a single meal a day, is that that meal tends to be bigger, but. Yep it tends not to be as much as if you were taking it throughout the day. So, you know, one of the one of the things is that if you're trying to lose weight, for example, don't eat when you're not hungry yeah. um, because you're better off skipping it and waiting until you are hungry. Right. Uh, because what's the point of eating if you're not hungry? But we get into these and it's, it's funny because children understand this. Um, you know, you have children. So if you sometimes kids aren't hungry at dinner. And they won't eat. And what do we do? We tell them, oh, no, you got to finish off your plate. Yep. So after I've, I've been years of, of yeah. this, yeah, right. Right. we're like, okay, we got to eat everything on our plates. Whether we're hungry or not, we eat at 6 o'clock. But kids are not like that. Four-year-olds, when they're not hungry at 6 o'clock, will just shuffle around the food on their plate. Yep. It's like, but, but we train that out of them. Because we say, no, 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 you got to do that. And that's really just convenience because of our modern schedule. It's not because they're hungry. So, uh, again, it's, it's something that we really have to sort of understand. So, you know, if, you, if you're talking about, you know, other than the what to eat sort of question in terms of what to eat, you know, the simple rules would be eat as few times as you can. Let your body sort of digest it. We tell people if you're going to eat one meal a day, think about breakfast and lunch that you're eating – a meal of your own body fat and that's great that's what it's there for right don't eat if you're not hungry if you're not hungry at 8 a.m in the morning why would you start shoving cornflakes into your mouth right like that right. doesn't even make any sense at all well we've been like, ingrained with this notion that breakfast is the most important meal of the day and you should got to start the day to be healthy with a good breakfast i mean i think that's what has gone i mean that's, that's what that's i grew exactly up with. the that's that's exactly what people get told but yeah. the truth is 
um, again, that your body already does that for you. So if you look at what happens to your body before uh, you wake up, just before you wake up, your body actually has a, a surge of hormones called a counter-regulatory surge, which actually pushes out glucose into the system. That's the reason that if you look at circadian rhythm studies of normal human beings, the, the, the time of day that is people are least hungry is 8 a.m. And that's also the time of day, the longest from when you've eaten. So on average, right, right. people ate dinner and it was like 10 hours since they last ate, yet they're the least hungry. Hmm. Why is that? That, sh- that shouldn't be. But it is because your body is pulling out energy from your fat stores, from your liver, so you're not hungry. And your body's like, why do I have to eat? I'm pulling all this energy back from my liver from the night before, from lunch before, from breakfast and the previous day. I don't need to eat. I'm good. So you don't need to get you started. And for years in Europe, people would just drink a cup of coffee and go to work sort of thing. Well, let me ask you about that. It's funny you say that. Um, Let me ask you quickly because it's been a thought on my mind for a long time. Is does if I put butter in my coffee or like whole whipping cream or some really dense fat fatty additive to my coffee, does it does it negatively affect the fast? Does it cause the fast to be um, invalid if I, if that's what I do until noon? No, and that, this is very popular. The sort of bulletproof coffee and what it is is it's really like a hack. Um, so fasting is really about the time that you don't eat. So technically, it's it's a variation of a fast. Yeah. But the whole benefits in terms of weight loss is by lowering insulin levels. So what happens is that if you put a lot of butter or MCT oil in your coffee, what you do is you put a almost pure fat in, you get a lot of calories, but almost no insulin effect. So remember, you're still keeping your insulin levels low, even though you've got you know 500 calories yeah. uh, from, from your Bulletproof coffee. So it works for some people. And physiologically, it's good. It's like a hack. It's, a, it's not quite natural, yep. but you can get great results from these sort of uh, fat fast, for example. Right. And and it's by understanding that it's really the insulin response, not the calories that determine the effect. So if you're fasting and your insulin levels are being driven down and you take this bulletproof coffee with a ton of fat in it, your insulin levels are still going to be low. So great. You might get very good results from that. And if it helps you during the fasting, then lots of people have done well. And that's why it's so popular these days yep. uh, because people have found that, hey, this actually works pretty well. Um, you know, you get all these people poo-pooing it and saying, oh, this and that. But it's like there's nothing wrong with it. If that's what works for you, then that's what works for you. Yeah, and if, I mean, if you, if you prefer to just eat a pat of butter, you know, you, you don't have to put it in your coffee. You could just have that as well if that worked for you. Yeah. Yeah, or you could just go without. I mean, either yeah, one is yeah. fine. I mean, the point is to to, to see where um, what what gives you the best results. But but it makes a lot of sense to me. This whole sort of fat fast variation, bulletproof coffee, you know, cream in your coffee sort of thing. To me, this makes a lot of sense. It, it actually, uh, you know, to me seems like a pretty reasonable option uh, for people. But not everybody does well. But a lot of people do. With with type two diabetes, is it? Have you encountered a case where it's not possible through diet and through manipulation of eating times to control your blood sugar levels? I mean, are there, you know, like my I, I, this just happened to a friend of mine got diagnosed with type two diabetes. I couldn't understand why because I know what he eats, 
and I know when he eats and I know how he exercises, but he's getting these super high blood sugar levels at night. And he started taking moringa seeds. He, he was, he was prescribed metformin. And then he decided I'm going to try moringa seeds. He asked me about, it. I'm like, I've never heard of them, but I was talking to you next. This was last week. I'm like, I'm, t- I'm I've got to ask Dr. Fung about, about this. And you know, I encourage him to do more investigative work on the back end. Why, why is your blood sugar level going up? at three o'clock in the morning to 300 or, you know, whatever numbers he's getting as opposed to just taking seeds or, um, you know, metformin. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these sort of, um, supplements do work, but ultimately the thing is that there's, there's different types. So the standard type two diabetes, if you don't eat, then your sugars will come down, but not all. So there's a lot of these sort of latent onset type one diabetics, so they actually are much more like type 1 than type 2, in which case, um, and it's becoming increasingly prevalent for some reason that we don't know of. Type 1 diabetes is not diet-related in right. kind of whatsoever. So you can get all these very lean people. Um, like a good example is gestational diabetes. So gestational diabetes um, happens in pregnancy. And the thing is that clearly it's not a diet effect. Because you go from non-diabetic um, to diabetic, and the only change is the pregnancy. So therefore, there's a clear relationship to the pregnancy, hormones of pregnancy, the changes of pregnancy that has made you diabetic. It wasn't your diet. Um, so there are other things. I mean, type, but, but, but the standard sort of type 2 diabetes um, is almost always responsive, but it's not always sort of the typical type 2 diabetes and also type 2 diabetes very very late in the game is also something that uh doesn't always respond so okay i mean i've treated a lot of them and we've picked up a lot of type ones and we've uh had a lot of end stage type twos that don't respond so yeah there there's sort of intricacies um in it for do, sure do mor- is moringa seeds a, a supplement that you have used or know much about or i don't know much about it huh. a lot of people use things like um berberine and bitter melon and um, things like that, cinnamon sometimes. And if you're, and those... if you're testing it, it, it and it works, then good on you. Oh, oh, who, I mean, depends on the side effects and who knows what those are. But Yeah. Right. I mean, um, I, I don't think there's – I'm not really against any of these things. But to me, it's more important to understand why because if you don't treat the sort of root cause of the – problem then you never sort of fix it and they're not always fixable so type one if he's uh, late onset type one um then right. it's not fixable for whatever like right. it may get better temporarily but um in the long term you still may need some other treatments H- how is fasting beneficial for people that don't have weight to lose well, there's a lot of other sort of benefits of fasting and people, um, again, have sort of lost this sort of insight into what it is. But if you look back at sort of historically um, from a spiritual sense, people have always used this fast as a sort of cleansing, a detox. It's this sort of idea that you're going to give your body sort of a spring cleaning. And what's really interesting about that idea of detoxification is that there seems to be more and more um, – truth to it. That is, uh, there's a process in the body called autophagy, which has become sort of very topical uh, because the 2016 Nobel Prize for Medicine was awarded to some of the early research in autophagy. And what it is, is that when you don't eat, so your body has certain nutrient sensors. 
So as you sense food coming in, so insulin, for example, is a nutrient sensor. It senses that you're eating. And therefore, it tells your body to both store energy and it, it, it increases your growth pathways. That is, your body doesn't want to grow unless there's adequate nutrients coming in through your mouth. So if you um, are eating, then you, uh, in, your, your body uses these nutrient sensors, which include uh, both uh, insulin and something called mTOR. Sorry, is that on? Do you hear that? Somebody's no, I don't calling hear. Me. Uh, no, okay. I don't hear. Um, so you have these uh, mTOR, which is another nutrient sensor. And what happens is that if your body senses that you are getting nutrients, it just says, okay, go ahead, grow all you like. So when you don't eat, you turn off all these nutrient sensors, and then your body actually breaks down. There's a period of time where your body will break down proteins. And everybody thinks it's really bad, but it turns out it's actually a very good sort of cellular housekeeping mechanism. So you take your sort of old junky proteins, you burn it for energy, and then when you eat again, your, your body rebuilds them. So in fact, there's actually a whole renovation cycle. You're tearing down the old stuff, building new stuff, which is very, very powerful because if you think about renovating your bathroom or something, you cannot renovate your bathroom until you rip out those old 70s kind of avocado green <laughs> tubs, right? Yep, yep. So the first step in renewing your body is actually to tear it out, to throw it out. Hmm. You, if you kept it all there, if you kept the tub and the lime green toilets, you couldn't put a new one in. Yep. So the, this is how the body works. Our bone works the same way. You actually have to break down bone and then rebuild it in order to regenerate yourself. So autophagy is this very powerful mechanism which doesn't get activated unless you turn off all these nutrient sensors. So how, long, how long does it take to uh, to start that process? Is it a 24-hour, 36-hour? It's probably hours? somewhere around 16 to 36 hours, somewhere okay. in that range. It's not very well-defined because the research is all new. Um, but again, this is, this is all of a sudden carries huge uh, implications because Alzheimer's disease, for example, is because you're, you're – brain is kind of cluttered up with all this excess protein. So, hey, can we use this to break down some of that old protein? Um, you know, a lot of the excess skin. So we have people who have lost a lot of weight. We, we have never sent them for skin loss surgery because we want the body to break down all that old connective tissue, all that old skin and use it rather than doing kind of expensive, risky surgery. Does that, and you can do does that. Does that work? I mean, do they, does the skin, does the body Take yeah, we haven't skin. had anybody go for skin skin removal surgery. Wow. wow. And that's even with like 100 pounds of weight, 120 pounds of weight, because that skin is not fat. That skin is protein. Mm -hmm. You need to break down protein. I think that what, what, what we have to do is sort of uh, let your body burn it down because you know that you can. If you look at, um, if you look at um, these uh, pictures of, World War II, concentration camp, there's no flabby skin anywhere. Your body is not going to carry around flabby skin when there's nothing to eat. So it's going to break it down. And the point is that when you eat again, it will build it again. So in terms of cancer prevention, Alzheimer's prevention, all kinds of things, it, it seems to have a lot of potential to reverse these sort of diseases or prevent these diseases. And and then what's what I think is fascinating is that, wow, 
it's just like the sort of ancient people said, it's this sort of cleansing sort of detoxification process yep. where you let your body clear out all the old junk and then rebuild it new again. And it's like, wow, how did they know that kind of like uh, 2000 years ago, you know, the ancient Greeks and so on when they're doing these fasts and these uh, detox procedures and cleansing procedures and all this sort of stuff. So really just a fascinating sort of world of, um, you know, and, and it's more along the wellness spectrum. That is, maybe it's not um, something that you can use to treat disease, but it, it's a it's a it's a very powerful way to kind of stay healthy, sort of thing. Yep. Yep. You know, eating right, but also periods of time where you're just going to let your body clean itself out, clear out all that old junk, clear out all the old protein, clear out all the old glucose, and then start anew again. It's like a spring cleaning sort of for your body. Fascinating. Look, I, I know we're running out of time. Um, I want to ask you quickly, um, last question. How do you incorporate your own advice into your life? How, do, how does your diet look and what, what kind of fasting routine do you do personally? So personally, I use a lot of shorter fasts. So again, our, our sort of cardinal rule. So we have a clinic called the Intensive Dietary Management Program. And we try to individualize it with people. It's an online program. People can get help with their fasting and so on. So it's something that uh, sort of our number one rule is sort of is fitted into your life because it's something that you need to kind of incorporate into a lifestyle. So if you, uh, you know, hate doing these long fasts, then don't do it because you're not going to. Mm -hmm. If these long fasts totally disrupt your family schedule, then don't do it because it's not going to work. So what I do a lot of is these shorter kind of 22, 24 hour fasts where I go from dinner to dinner, because if you skip breakfast and skip lunch, mostly nobody notices because you're just right. working. Yep. So nobody even notices or cares, but you just fit it in. So you do it a couple of times a week and nobody notices. I do it more or less. And again, I think that the key is to kind of switch things up a bit. So there'll be times like over the holidays, over um, over vacations where I'm not going to fast at all mm -hmm. because again, it's kind of disruptive, uh, to everything. And so I won't do it and I'll usually gain some weight and then I'll do it more when I get home. And mm -hmm. it's like, it's fine. Like by the time I finish it, it, it works out fine. And that's one of the things that, you know, uh, one of the things is having that support. People understand what you're doing. It's very important because if everybody around you is telling you, oh, that's going to kill you, that fasting is stupid like anything, uh, you're going to stop very quickly. And that's what we try to create with this IDM uh, program is that sort of support network, having yeah. experts that you can talk to. Um, and that's one of the things uh, that, that we have. So just, just, you know, in terms of just quickly in terms of the resources, like, you know, our website, we have a ton of resources and yep. there's a book about fasting. Um, and then if you need more help, uh, our website, uh, idmprogram.com, you can actually get people to help you kind of give, get personal advice. Of course, you have to pay for it. Or there's also a new membership program, which is actually very exciting for people who, who don't need the personal help, but kind of need a little bit more kind of uh, encouragement and so on. It's sort of a monthly uh, membership. It's $40 a month. So kind of the cost of like a single meal sort of thing per yep, month. Yep. But then you can get access to sort of a little bit more recipes and meal plans and uh, sort of advice. And hopefully that will help people. But if, if you don't need it, then you just go on our website. We have tons of sort of free posts, free blogs. Almost everything I write is available for free on that blog. Um, it's just in a nicer package. That's, yeah, right. that's usually right. the thing. 
And is that is that the place if people have questions or want to find you? Is that the place you you're lurking, or are you on social media, or are you on Twitter? I know you're on um, Twitter. Yeah, I'm Twitter, so you can uh, find me at uh, Doctor. That's D R Jason Fung, and uh, the website to to find like so all the stuff. Uh, I have links to like a lot of the videos that I've done, like the YouTube videos. Uh, there's a free podcast again that we do sort of w- once a week, um, and also the blogs which I write once a week on various topics. It's all archived there at our website uh, idmprogram.com. So again, IDM standing for Intensive Dietary Management. So everything's there. So if you want to, you know, somewhere, oh, where do you write about that? You can just go there, go to the blog, search cool. the archives, um, or or a link to the podcast, and you can hear all the podcasts that we've had cool um or or the various youtube lectures that 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 i've done and some of the stuff that's that's online i i I link to that so if people want to find it that's kind of all there awesome well dr fun thank you so much thank you for your work in the world and your your courage i mean because you're speaking up in a world that does there's not a lot of agreement and you're, yeah. you're standing up against a lot of, uh, you know, people that will, would, call it, would call it heresy or, you know, call you crazy. <laughs> and, you know, I think you're doing a tremendous service to the world. And I, and I really appreciate your books and your writing and all the stuff you make available for free to help people. Thank you very much. I mean, and I think that is the point. I mean, I, I, I basically try to um, put out stuff that I see it um, and really a lot of sort of common sense stuff. Like to me, it seems like it's common sense. And I, I think that what happens is that people, when they say, when they hear an expert saying, oh, you should eat six times a day and eat uh, a lot of bread, uh, they go, okay, well, that sounds really stupid, but they're an expert, so it must be true. And right. people think that even though right. their common sense tells them, well, that's not true or, oh, eat a you know a couple muffins even if you're not hungry in the morning it's like that doesn't sound very smart but it, it's coming from the yeah. the dietitian so therefore they must be right and even though i think it really sounds like you know really really silly i'll do it so uh, this is the point like like listen to what i say and see if it makes sense to you if it makes sense to you then give it a try because you can always change it. yeah right so. no it's very refreshing and it's very nice to have someone of authority like yourself like say some of these things that are you know quote unquote common sense you know it's just it's just really really helpful to the world so thanks again i really appreciate your time all right thank you very much the whole life podcast is produced by our podcast team winslow jenkins becca borowski and ernie hurtado you can find all of our episodes links and complete show notes at wholelifechallenge.com forward slash podcast. The way that I've found is the best way to listen to podcasts is to subscribe so that episodes automatically get delivered right to your mobile device. You can do that in any podcast app on your phone. And hey, if you like the podcast, please do me a favor. Go to iTunes and give it a five-star rating and recommend it to your friends. I'm Andy Petronic, and thanks so much for listening. Thank you.